Broadcasting the information the mainstream media won't touch. This is The Richie Allen Show in association with DavidIke.com. I've been looking forward all week to talking to our next guest. And just when we came back uh, into the second hour, when we came back from our first guest, Maria Heller, I told you uh, briefly about Martin Bryant. Now, you know the story. I was beginning my career as a producer of talk radio when um, the Port Arthur massacre happened. And like I said, it's 20 years ago next month. So it's incredible, really. We're talking about this and a very significant milestone anniversary is coming up. It does remain, as I said earlier, one of the deadliest shootings worldwide committed by a single person. It was given blanket media coverage around the world when it happened. Uh, Martin Bryant, as I said, is serving 35 consecutive life sentences in Tasmania for carrying out the Port Arthur massacre, if indeed he did. And we're going to get into that now shortly with our next guest. As I said, researching it, uh, to me, it looks like one of the most bizarre stories, one of the most bizarre cases that I've ever been, uh, that, that I've come to be aware of. Like I said, when I was starting out as a producer journalist, we took what we were given by the by the bigger uh, journalism organisations, by AFP, Associated Press and Reuters, and we just repeated what they told us. Uh, my next guest believes that what we don't know uh, would fill several books, and in fact he's written books about this uh, particular subject. Uh, he is a, a journalist, an author, and a PhD. He's a very, very clever man with a resume that would take me uh, probably the best part of a week to read out. He's originally from Cairn in Australia, but he's now living in Austria, I believe. Uh, he's, he's written several books on different subjects, but as I said, Mass Murder, uh, book one and book two, the Keith Allen, written by Keith Allen Noble, my guest, about uh, Martin Bryant, um, are compelling reading. Let's welcome to the programme Keith Allen Noble. Keith, thank you for coming on the show. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, Richie. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm I'm delighted, and it's huge credit goes to our producer Claire Calvi for for knowing about the story and remembering it and knowing about you and your book, uh, uh, Keith. Keith, it's incredible. It's incredible that so many shootings have happened in recent years in different parts of the world. Time has probably flown. I mean, 20 years is not a long time in, in the grand scheme of things, but so much has happened in 20 years. I knew all about this story, Keith, but it's fair and honest for me to say that I haven't given it much thought in a long time. But by God, it's important. It has kind of gotten lost, hasn't it, in recent years? Well, yes, and um, you're right. It's 20 years. But, of course, there have been previous uh, stories prior to Port Arthur. And um, they're ongoing, these things. And um, they've almost become like a fact of life. People are taken aback and then they just move on. But this one, um, for some reason... Um, many good people, and I have to thank them uh, right up front. This is not all my doing. There are many people who have been working on this for years. As you will see in the book, a lot of their hard work, their analyses, it's in the book. And you, you once you read it, you, you're just shocked. You cannot almost comprehend that this story can be so convoluted and bizarre, as you say, and not be resolved. And we'll get into that, I'm sure. And it, it should be resolved. And why? We have a fellow mentally handicapped in prison for 20 years for a crime they had nothing to do with. He never shot a single person, never wounded a single person, and there is no hard evidence, none, 
to prove this. This happened over the 28th and the 29th of April 1996 in Tasmania, near the, um, well, you know, at a guest house and at a, at a coffee shop near uh, a national monument, near, near a tourist site at, at Port Arthur in, 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 in Tasmania. It must have been absolutely horrifying at the time for, for people to hear that something had happened on this scale that so many people were, 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 were murdered. And we are going to get into the, the anomalies in the case and the anomalies in the case made against Martin. But, but Keith, do you want to first of all tell um, our audience a little bit about Martin uh, Bryant? Who was Martin Bryant, Keith? A little bit of an enigma. Um, much of what you read is inaccurate, distorted. Um, a book that I would refer you to to get a better idea of who Martin is is a book by his mother, Carlene Bryant, called My Story. It's a very simple, honest, candid story about her son. She holds back nothing. Um, she expresses the grief, the whole process, but she, like everyone else, cannot comprehend what has happened and how things have never been properly investigated. Now, I've made notes here, uh, Richie, of course, and I see further down on my notes uh, I was going to mention something, but I have to mention it right up front now because things are moving along here. There was no trial in the Port Arthur case. There was no coronial inquest. There was no public inquiry and no royal commission. Can you imagine that? 35 people murdered, 23 wounded, and the government did everything conceivable to stop the public learning the truth. And that is the way it is today. They will stop everything. They do not want people to know. And as you said, there was no trial. He initially pleaded not guilty to the murders. Yes. He never, he never confessed. Then he strangely changed his plea to guilty. And what's even more strange, and we're hearing a lot about this in the famous uh, Manitowoc uh, County case in Wisconsin now, which is getting a lot of coverage at the moment. But his legal team, Martin's legal team, uh, persuaded him, twisted his arm and persuaded him to plead guilty. And that was at a hearing, which wasn't a trial of any description, but it was a hearing in November 1996. Can I just say this and then I'm going to shut up and you can have all the time to talk. I don't want to be talking. <laughs> the, the judge ordered that the evidence for the case be sealed. Isn't that I'm, right? I'm sorry, repeat that. The judge then ordered, after this Mickey Mouse kind of court hearing, this kangaroo thing where, where Martin... Uh, pled guilty, the judge then ordered there and then that all the evidence for the case be sealed. That, that's a point that's never been totally uh, resolved and fleshed out and put into the public. This is, there's so many things that have never, ever been clarified uh, to the public. But, but just on this point, Martin was kept in isolation for over six months. Now, Martin had had... I say had in past tense, whatever it is now, we have no idea, but it was 66, his IQ. He was in the lowest 2% of the population. His mother tells stories that simple things like door latches would trouble him. He couldn't assemble Meccano toy parts. He was incompetent. Yes, he could do some things. He could drive an automatic vehicle. Uh, he was living by himself, but under a guardianship order. It was just deplorable. So for six months, he was coerced and coerced and intimidated and told he'd never see his family again, he had to change his plea. But he held out for six months and then eventually, being weak, which you can understand in isolation, he collapsed, gave in, 
and it was not his plea. It was the plea of John Avery, who was supposed to be his defense lawyer, his defense lawyer. And that defense lawyer convinced him to plead guilty. Now, what sort of defense lawyer is that? It's just absolutely appalling. And worse, his own profession never came out and condemned him, never said a word about it. They all went along for the ride. If this is staggering. And at this point, we should we should remember that for a lot of our listeners, this might be new, so we shouldn't assume knowledge. Let's just very briefly um, remind people of what the official narrative says uh, actually happened. And this is kind of extraordinary. Now, so much about Martin's life, about where he lived, who he lived with, his problems that Keith has just described there, his IQ problems, his mental health problems. Keith, um, uh, Martin, I should say, on the 28th of April 1996, um, allegedly got out of bed, set an alarm, even though he didn't have to be up for anywhere because he wasn't working, he wasn't employed by anybody. And he headed off to the Seascape Bed and Breakfast. And there we are told by, basically by, by the police and by the, the courts, that he murdered the owners because, uh, for no other reason than they had bought the business uh, from underneath the nose of his father. He then went to the ruins, uh, he went to the Broad Arrow Cafe. He killed 12 people there. He walked across the cafe to the other side and he shot eight more. When he was driving away, he rolled his window down and he started firing indiscriminately and killed four more people. Then they said that he drove down the road, got out of the car, killed a woman and her two children, including the oldest child that he had to chase down the street to catch. Then four people in the BMW, he shot them dead. He took a man hostage. He killed a woman in a Toyota. Uh, uh, the hostage he allegedly later killed at the guest house. Apparently he returned uh, to the guest house. He attempted to set that on fire. He injured himself and then he was captured uh, where, where he was taken to hospital and he was treated. And Keith just said there, everything Keith told you is true, by the way. He then was locked up for months and months and months after that. I don't think I've left anything out, Keith. That's what he was supposed to have done. Yes. That spree that's... of madness. That this yes. incompetent... That's child, because uh, I mean he had the mind of, a, of an eight-year-old child, didn't he? He's supposed to have done all this for no good reason. Just felt like it some morning, got up and said, right, let's go. Exactly. That's the official narrative. And people have bought into this narrative. And there's a reason for that. Immediately after, and we'll come back, but immediately after the incident, his picture was put in the front pages of the newspaper, full page. This is the man who did it. His image was manipulated and we had the bug-eyed image which was published in newspapers. In Australia, this is against the law, but no newspaper was ever penalised or uh, fined or uh, anything serious. It was just accepted. And of course, this biased the entire nation against him. It would have been impossible to get in jury. Nobody was in, in their right mind came out and supporting him. He was just, he was finished and that was the end of it. He never got a proper trial. He had no proper representation and there's never been any hard evidence linking him to anything. Yes, he was at Seascape. That's never been denied. But when you read about what actually happened at Seascape, it just doesn't add up. It's it's a, a silly, silly, so stupid, you cannot believe it. But people do. People do. Martin got up, went swimming. That's where he said he went. He never said he went to Seascape. He, he said very categorically he did not go to Port Arthur historic site. And that's very clear. So who do we have then doing this shooting? 
Well, there's been a number of suggestions. There's been images. Names have been mentioned. It's all on the internet. It's all in the books there. But there were seven crime scenes. Seven. Allegedly, 35 people were shot. 23 wounded. There's a very interesting part in the case that really is not touched on in many of the documents and certainly not in the official narrative. They do not want you to go into this part of the case. And I'm referring to the historic site toll booth. Now, this is where people turned off the highway, drove uh, to the toll booth, paid whatever the fee was, and then drove into the park to enjoy their day. Well, this becomes very, very interesting because at the time of the shooting at the cafe, a number of vehicles, two particularly, drove in to the toll booth, paid their fee, and then after a little distance past the toll booth, somebody told them they were shooting. Now, they turned their vehicles around and they drove back to the toll booth and parked. One of those vehicles was the gold BMW, which you mentioned, Richie. It contained, supposedly, four people. A red Commodore, which is a particular vehicle in Australia, parked right behind the gold BMW, and it contained two people. So we have six people at the toll booth, and supposedly, down the road, the gunman is shooting a woman with the two young children, as you mentioned, and then he drives the vehicle, a yellow Volvo, and by the way, there are reports documented that there was more than one yellow Volvo. He drives that yellow Volvo and stops at the toll booth. Now, the gunman did not have to stop at the toll booth there was no reason for him to stop at the toll booth. He had his weapons in the car, but and the road was open, but he decided to stop. Now, then we have witness statements. Now, these witness statements were obtained, not by me, but they're in the book that you mentioned, and you can read about them, and it is just mind-boggling. Witnesses were trying to drive into the historic site near the toll booth, and the road was blocked. They couldn't get through. On one side was the gold BMW. On the other side was the yellow Volvo. And they watched and looked what was going on. Well, lo and behold, inside that yellow Volvo was the gunman and two of the people from the gold BMW. Now, what the hell are they doing sitting in this car knowing full well that this person had been shooting at the historic site and allegedly he had just shot three people within earshot? They probably saw him, saw the vehicle, saw the shooting. Why were they hanging around? Why were they hanging around? Now, it's been suggested and it's a reasonable suggestion that they were handlers. They got out of the BMW and walked over and sat inside the Volvo. Now, when I read that, I couldn't believe it, but it's in a witness statement, a legal document. And I checked into this, Keith, because, you know, I had plenty of notice that you were coming on. And it is my job, of course, any half-decent presenter. It's my job to trip you up if you say anything that 
you can't back up. And of course, I can't trip you up because everything you've said is true. That's exactly what the witness said. It doesn't make an ounce of sense. Not at all. And then um, we have the shooting at the toll booth. He takes the weapon and shoots these two people. And mind you, the woman, Helene Salzman, is her name, was her name, if she is dead, if she is dead, that's not being totally clarified, who was sitting right on the front seat next to this gunman. Well, the gunman gets out, story is, and he shoots these two people. And now we have the driver of the gold BMW, who must have seen this just out the window of his BMW, gets out of the car, the gunman is standing here with the rifle in his hand and starts talking with him. Now, if you had a BMW and you'd seen this, wouldn't you have tried to uh, drive it away and get the hell out of there? Yeah, you would do. He goes and talks with him. Well, for his effort, he gets a bullet and goes down. Then the gunman goes over and drags the woman out of the car. Her name was Nixon. She's in the passenger seat of the gold BMW, pulls her out and shoots her. Then there's a transfer of, of supposedly, we're told this is what happened, transfer weapons from one vehicle. I mean, it's just absolutely madness. The red, what is interesting to me, is the red Commodore that was parked there had two people in it, supposedly tourists from New Zealand. Now, this is a brand new rental car, I'm sure. They could have easily driven away, quickly, could have driven away before that BMW the Volvo, I'm sorry, arrived. They didn't. They ran away. Now, can you imagine leaving your rent car with all your clothes and your camera and everything behind when you could have just turned the key and driven away? You're safer in the car all day long, Keith. You are huh. safer in the car all day long. Yeah. Then later, other witnesses said when they looked over at the toll booth, looked at the toll booth, some of them said they saw the bodies, some didn't, but nobody identified this red Commodore as being there. Who the hell drove it away? Where did it go? Now, I raise this point because on the morning of the, that day, the 28th of February, a employee of the historic site who was working at the toll booth reported and remembered seeing a young fellow in a Volvo with long hair. And his description of this person, if you can remember, Richie, was he said, the fellow in the vehicle looked as though you would look at the end of a day. He looked tired, worn, haggard, and he was heading to do the shooting. Now, reverse yeah, yeah. the situation. When the so-called gunman gets into the gold BMW and then drives up to the local shop where more shooting went on, Another witness remarked how clean and neat this young fellow was. Couldn't believe it. And, and all these witnesses in this area described people, a, a, a person, these people described this person as having hair below his shoulders. People even described it flowing down onto his chest. Martin Bright never had hair that long on that day. Never. So what did we really have at this toll booth? A change of vehicles? Did we have handlers being cleaned up because they knew too much? Was there somebody in this red 
Commodore that we didn't know about, a second gunman. I'm not saying there was, but this whole business, this is just one point, one area of the case that has never been addressed and should have been addressed in a trial, all up, hands-on trial, with the facts coming out. But, but uh, his his defence team are working against him. You won't be surprised. 26 minutes past the hour. Massive interest in this on Twitter and on email. Paul Cullen is listening to the programme in Dundalk in Ireland. Paul, how are you? Uh, he says, Richie, please ask Keith, how could anybody expect the guy to be as successful with his weapons as uh, Martin appeared to be. He was able to shoot 12 times in the coffee shop and kill eight people. He was able to be uncannily accurate shooting out of the car. He was able to kill people with single bullets as other scenes. This was a, a guy who had no training. He had no weapons proficiency skills. Uh, this is an email that goes on. Uh, Paul, I won't read the rest of it because we'll be here all night, but we get where you're coming from. Before I read the rest of um, the tweets, uh, 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 Keith, that's a great point, isn't it? He fired 12 times in the shop yeah. and killed eight people. Right, your, your, your um, call is absolutely right. I mean, he never had those skills. Martin was a klutz. He, yes, um, I'm not going to insult him and say he couldn't tie his shoelaces. He probably could. But he had no weapons training. This person in the cafe was a highly trained, highly skilled person that took out people one shot, and that was it, and just moved to the next one, the next shot like this. And it just happened and happened and happened and happened. And if you talk with people who were there and listened to it and, and experienced it, that's what they will tell you. And that's what they, the evidence says. Martin Bryant didn't do it. And if you want to go back to the cafe for one little point that's very significant is the gunman went there with a big bag, a big sports bag. And this, of course, contained the weapons that he used. And he went and a black video camera. Can't forget that. A black video camera. So he struggled in with this. He went in and purchased a meal, put the tray the plate on a tray and a drink container and came out and ate this out on the um, porch or patio or whatever you want to call it around the cafe. Then he went back inside. Now, all these things had his fingerprints on them. He touched them all. The cops never lifted the fingerprints off. There is no fingerprints anywhere in this case that links Martin Bryant to anything. Or any DNA evidence. This is extraordinary. No. Listen to no. what Keith Allen Noble is telling you. This young man, he was 29, with an IQ of 66, he had problems. Uh, but he didn't have any history of violence um, or, 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 or anything remotely criminal in this, in this kid's life. He's supposed to have, in April 1996, on the 28th of April, gotten up out of bed and decided to go on a monumental killing spree uh, in a coffee shop at a tourist uh, uh, attraction at a, at a guest house uh, further down the road at a toll booth. It's absolutely incredible. I'm going to read a few tweets, uh, Keith, because there's so yes, many coming please, in. Please. Sarah Willis is in Australia. Richie, I just tuned in. WTF! Exclamation mark! Exclamation mark! Yes, Sarah, this really happened to this kid. As uh, the order on Twitter says, please ask Keith, where do the courts say he got the guns? And with an IQ of 66, how did he use a gun, including loading the magazines and the safety, etc.? And of course, this is the problem when he didn't have a proper trial and he was coerced into uh, confessing to something that he obviously, and it's obvious to me anyway, that he didn't do. 
um, and he had a terrible uh, defence team working against him. They didn't get to dig into these questions, no. these great questions. Where did he get the guns? How did he learn how to use them? How did he, uh, how did he load them? Keith? All we have is a cop by the name of Gerard Dutton. Now, this little m- mongrel, that's the, the, uh, I'll just be polite and leave it at that. Say whatever you want, Keith. We're standing on, in, on videos, and you can see it on the uh, internet. He says, these are the rifles. This is the thing. This is what Martin used. This was used at the, the uh, Port Arthur uh, massacre, etc. None of these things. And, and a person by the name of Stuart Beatty is a gunsmith, wrote a book on this addressing the whole firearms issue and there is not one thing that leaks martin bright to any of the weapons alleged to have been used at the port arthur incident where did he get the guns from it never really resolved as far as the public knows there is a person now deceased by the name of terry hill he owned a gun shop in hobart now this mongrel of a bloody lawyer by the name of john avery pressured pressured Terry Hill to dob in to uh, say that he got the guns from Terry Hill. That letter is in the book. There's a copy of the letter. The cops, the lawyers, squeeze this Terry Hill to say that Martin Bryant got the guns from him. Now, Terry was a decent person and refused to do that. For his trouble, they shut him down, removed his licence, he lost his business. That's what he, how he paid for being honest. There is no evidence that links Martin to any of these weapons, just statements out of the mouths of idiots, deceitful mongrels. And that's what we've got. The entire case is full of it. You know what, Keith? Um, it's worth just running through a few undisputed facts just to absolutely drive our listeners mad who've not heard about this. This man... Martin Bryant wasn't and couldn't have been and wasn't, by the way, positively identified at the scene of the crime. Nobody identified him until they saw the disgusting doctored pictures by the media, the ones with the sinister eyes uh, that were doctored. Terrible stuff. He wasn't identified by a single fingerprint or DNA evidence at the scene. He wasn't linked with the weapons, as Keith just described there. He had an alibi. He was seen by other people at another location when the crimes were being committed. He spent months in solitary confinement and sensory deprivation, which is against the Geneva Conventions, by the way, to do that to a man until he eventually said, all right, then I did it. I'd give up my grandmother if they locked me up for months in solitary confinement. This is a man with an IQ of 66. He is in jail, people, today in Tasmania for the rest of his life for a mass murder that Bruce Willis or a character played by Bruce Willis um, you would need you would need that sort of expertise to carry this out Keith Allen Noble's book on this is called Mass Murder you can find it at all good online retailers I suggest you get it and you pay attention to it this is serious stuff quick few tweets Zana is listening in New Zealand Zana, thanks for the question. Please, Richie, ask Keith, qui bono, who benefits? With cases like 9-11, Sandy Hook and others, we can identify or at least speculate as to who benefited. But what about poor Darzer? Who benefited, Keith? Yes. Um, leading up to this, was the Australian government was committed, is committed to uh, de-arming the population. They tried and tried to get firearm legislation through Australia-wide, um, they've never had any success. And it was stated 
years before that unless there was a massacre of some sort, some size, uh, they would never get legislation through. And because not all the states would agree on it and there was always resistance, they needed this. And of course, when this happened, they had ready to go legislation. It was very quickly passed and the public was convinced that this was the thing to do. They wanted to get rid of the guns. It's the guns that are the problem. And they set this up. Martin is the patsy. Um, they got their legislation and now they've forgotten about it, except Martin is still there. The belief is that Martin was, like in a number of these cases, supposed to die in this incident. And if you can recall, Richie, when he came out of the seascape cottage, he was babbling strange things, but most significantly, he had third-degree burns on his back and buttocks. He was lying probably unconscious or drugged, burnt to such a degree that his body snapped out of it and he got himself out of the cottage. But he was most probably not supposed to survive. Now, that, that's probably uh, created a massive problem for them because then they had to deal with it. So we ended up with no trial, no anything. And um, until this is addressed, all these things you're raising, your callers are raising, tweeting, um, that we're not going to find out. Please let me have a few minutes at the end if we're getting uh, close to the end, Richie. Because I will, like of course. Absolutely, Keith. You'll get plenty of time. At the moment, we're 25 minutes to the top of the hour, which means we have 20 uh, minutes from this point onwards. And I'm only interrupting just to put these points to you. I don't want to be getting in your way because this is deadly serious. I mean, folks, if you can't have empathy or sympathy for one human being, there's no hope for the rest of us. This is a kid whom... I'm not supposed to editorialise here. I'm supposed to bring on Keith and I'm supposed to be the devil's advocate and say, ah, come on, Keith, this is crazy. I can't do it. I can't do it. There's no DNA evidence. There's no fingerprints. This is a kid of 66. A CIA agent would find it difficult not to leave DNA evidence or fingerprints. It's just impossible that this, that, that this man committed these crimes, these heinous crimes. Keith, I, I'm, I'm going to draw you right back to the very beginning. You said, um, I think you said something like, allegedly 35 victims. Now, I should have picked you up on that, but I didn't want to be jumping on you straight away as we were just beginning to talk. Do you think that maybe 35 people didn't die? Do you think that the death toll is exaggerated in some way? The exact number of the deaths and wounded um, are not certain. Some say higher, some say lower. There are things you can read on the internet, but I've always stayed with those numbers because that's what I came across when I started working on this case. So the numbers are probably are reasonable, but it could be less, it could be more. And they needed a big splash, so they needed numbers like that. And just to go back to a point that you talk about with a shooting in the cafe, Martin shot in a left-handed manner, and he showed the police how he shot. But the shooter in the cafe shot in a right-handed manner. Now, you just don't um, – very few people are, are ambidextrous when it comes to shooting, especially with high accuracy. You might be high accurate, highly accurate with one side, but on the other side, not so. But Martin was not a trained shooter. He, he had a little bit of shooting, so he said, and uh, his another point was his girlfriend at the time, he had a, a lady friend, and his mother both said they never saw weapons in the house, and yet the police claimed he had a grand piano full of them. I mean, this is absolute nonsense. And as um, one of the investigators, a person by the name of Andrew McGregor, 
pointed out that all these things have numbers. Martin was supposed to have handcuffs. Well, they have numbers and all these things can be traced, but somehow the handcuffs just disappeared um, and they're not on the evidence list. And these kind of things that are so significant that link everything together, they just get forgotten about. And people just lashing out and thinking, he did it, we saw him, end of story. Do you know what's disgusting, Keith, to me? I mean, we really could have done a two-hour special on this and uh, because there's so many things about about Martin's story. I mean, he, you know, he was very vulnerable and we know that he spent some time with a woman called Helen Mary Elizabeth Harvey and she was an heiress and um, he, he had a relationship with her. He was a friend of hers and he lived with her for a while and he had some money when she died and um, she left him some money. And, you know, it's, it's an incredible story um of 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 characters and people that he met along his uh, his journey and what's amazing about that is is that when she died and he had some money we learned when he was um found guilty because of this you know fake confession that he gave we learned from some guy who allegedly assessed martin to see could the disability pension uh, sh should it continue because he was given a disability pension when he left school, such was his low IQ. Yes. Um, we, so all of a sudden we get this note, this note comes out of nowhere that says, oh, um, when this woman died that, that Keith was, uh, sorry, that Martin was friends with, um, well, I assessed uh, Martin to, uh, to see should he keep getting the disability thing and in that he talked about killing people. I mean, it's just bullshit, isn't it, Keith? I mean, it's just bullshit. It's the sort of stuff that you'd expect children to do if they were trying to frame another child for stealing their lunch money or something. Just crap. You know, all of a sudden, out of the woodwork, oh, yeah, yeah, he mentioned sometime that he felt like killing people. Well, why didn't you do something about it then? Why didn't you tell somebody at the time? All these little, you know, inconsistencies and, and outright lies, how frustrating it must be. And how frustrating it is for our listeners that there's you writing your books and you're obviously unbelievably clever. You're asking all these questions. And yet I doubt there are very many people in Tasmania, at least in politics or public life, who who give a shite about him, who care tuppence for him like. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's the books and the videos that people have made and the detail. It's just so much detail. But the system is totally corrupt. People have a very false uh, understanding of what Australia is like. It's a very romantic, from my experience, and I've lived in both places. I'm originally from Australia. People here in, in, in North America and also here in Europe, it's a romantic thing. And nobody wants to talk about this. And they think of the wild outback and all these things and the land down under. And, and you know, they name some songs and didgeridoos and all this thing. And it, it, it's it's completely false. The the system of justice, it's not. It's a legal system. It's corrupt to the core. Now, let me just go back to one other point. This weekend, a major television station in Australia, Channel 7, you'll find it on the internet, is having a special, an hour special on 20 years Port Arthur. And they're going to rehash the same old official narrative. They claim they've got new videos, new this, new that, but it isn't. We've seen trailers 
for this particular show. It's the same old rehashed rot that they've been serving up for years. There is nothing new. They don't focus on the critical questions. They don't resolve or answer anything. Nobody wants to talk about Martin, Brian, and the, the corrupt judicial system that put him there. Not having a lawyer, having a defence lawyer that actually convinced him to plead guilty after six months of isolation and a 66 IQ. I mean, t listeners, just just imagine it. And this boy was functioning at best at an 11 year old, as an 11 year old. So it's impossible. He, he was just slaughtered by the system and he had no political connections. They took all the money he inherited away from him. Nobody knows whatever happened to that money. It's never been audited and presented to the public. Who has that money now? Now, these are peripheral things, but this is what you're dealing with. It's a totally corrupt system. I'll tell you what, Keith, you say it's peripheral and I understand where you're coming from. But you're right to to suggest, I mean, following the money is always a great way. I mean, possibly John Avery or some of the lousy bastards who are supposed to be looking out for him uh, might have come into money for doing such a, you know, a terrible job on his defence. Folks, it's 17 minutes to the top of the year. A horrendous uh, shooting, we were told, happened uh, in April 1996 in Port Arthur, Tasmania, Australia. Martin Bryant was 29 at the time, uh, a chap with very serious, uh, a very serious learning disability, uh, with an IQ of 66, uh, was on a disability pension because of that, because he couldn't work and he really couldn't take care of himself. He had a mental age of 11, as uh, Keith said there. He is supposed to have carried out one of the worst atrocities ever uh, in Australia, uh, randomly killing people with semi-automatic weapons. Um, again, just to remind you again, can't overstate this, no DNA or fingerprint evidence anywhere ties him to the crime. And I tell you this, questions coming in uh, from listeners. Sean Hinchcliffe says, was Martin supposed to drive two or three cars? Were they all automatic? Uh, I don't think so, uh, says Sean. A lot of people express an absolute um, shock uh, one or two tweets we've had already and emails from people saying they never even heard of the case and they cannot believe that a man would be fitted up on, uh, you know, you could say flimsy evidence. There's no evidence, Keith. There's none. Well, that person has not heard of the Guildford Four or the Birmingham Six or Tottenham Three or Bloody Sunday. I mean, where have they been? Um yeah, I, I agree. It, it's it's uh, it's sometimes it leaves you speechless because it, it's so so obvious that this is corrupt. But you know, as you pointed out, people just go on their way and uh, forget about things. And who cares about Martin Bryan? I mean, uh, you know, I got other things to do. Keith, have you communicated with him at all? Have you spoken to him at all? Or? I, I haven't, and I, that's been deliberate. That something is in the works right now, and I can't go into that. Nor have I spoken or attempted to speak with his mother, Carleen Bryan. I wouldn't want anybody to get their hopes up. Or, yeah, yeah, that's great. No, I totally I'm, understand that, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to do something. I, I am, I'm working on it, and I'd like to get to the point where we're at now. Um, but uh, these whole case is... Now coming to a head, Richie, what we've discovered, and it was passed on to me, it's in the book, but it didn't catch on. So it's been extracted from the book, and now we've done something with it. One of the people involved with the case, one of the officials, was a person by the name of Stephen Parry. Stephen Parry is an ex-cop. 
So, listeners, your ears should be going up. He is an ex-cop. He's also an embalmer. He was charged with leading the team that embalmed the bodies. So at the end of this incident, when uh, the bodies were brought together, and a strange thing here, inexplicable, Tasmania happened to have a 22-body air-conditioned mortuary vehicle. Now, this would be the only one in Australia. It was built before the incident, and we believe it was built for the incident. Jesus. Because immediately after the incident, it was put on the internet for sale. Well, this is all in the book. Okay, so Parry runs the embalming team. And from, I think it was 25 bodies they were supposed to have done, alleged to have done. Again, the numbers, you, can you really trust them, whatever. But he did 25 of uh, these bodies according to uh, the internet and the reports. So that was the end of that. Ah, but not so fast. Because time moves on and Mr. Parry moves up in the world. Mr. Parry is now the president of the Australian Senate, which is equivalent, roughly, to the House of Lords in England. He is the president of the Australian Senate, former cop, qualified embalmer, now president of the Senate. Jesus so, Christ. Reward. So what, yes, yes, yes. So what do you think? Reward. But there's something else. In a little known book that I didn't discover but was brought to my attention, and I'm telling you the reference is in the book, this Harry wrote a seminar paper and it's published in a government document. And I will just read out what this Mr. Parry said in his seminar paper dated 1997, one year after the incident. Now, I'll quote exactly. I was particularly impressed. This is Parry. I was particularly impressed by the quick response and initiatives by some of the team members in packaging and collecting equipment. Now, this is embalming equipment. The response time and the amount of equipment quickly relocated was fantastic. So he's the team leader and he's bringing all this embalming equipment together in Hobart. Now comes the punch. One firm in particular, Nelson Brothers, Nelson Brothers in Melbourne, Victoria, Funeral Services, had organised for an embalming machine box and a special large equipment case to be manufactured ready for the incident. Oh, Jesus. Those are the exact words of Parry. These two containers were the envy of all embalmers and worked extremely well. They are Parry's words in Parry's paper, which is published in a government document. Now, last week... A show cause notice was issued on the president of the Australian Senate, Mr. Stephen Parry. And of course, we have not heard a thing yet from Mr. Parry. He has until the 16th of March to clarify his words. And if he doesn't, that tells us that he's standing by his words and he knew 
at the very, very latest, 1997, but probably in 1996, that Nelson Brothers Funeral Service in Melbourne, Australia, had manufactured embalming equipment ready for the incident. Prior knowledge. Right there. So we will then move ahead with the President of the Australian Senate and we will go after big time Nelson Brothers. Now, Keith, you... Can I just ask you this before we go on? And we've got about four minutes and you can have all the four minutes. Presumably, you... Um, being, you know, uh, you know, an educated man, a clever man, you have shared or will share this information with the Australian media to, to challenge them to pick up the baton because this is absolutely crucial evidence in proving that there was prior knowledge this was going to happen. Absolutely. But you wait and see, Richie, and see what the media does. Yeah. They'll run. They'll absolutely run. And right now, um, I'm challenging the barristers in Tasmania. Emails, quite strongly worded emails, have gone to four of them. There's another one on the list. No reaction. Very quiet. And all barristers are officers of the Supreme Court. They're all in Hobart. And Melbourne, um, sorry, Martin Bryant, mentally handicapped, Martin Bryant is dying within a few kilometres from where they sit in their tossy little posh bloody barrister holes. Keith, you... Keith, he's 48. What, I know you've not communicated with him and I, I think your reasons for not doing that are very noble. Uh, no pun intended whatsoever. <laughs> no, they are. They are noble because you could give, you know, terrible false hope to somebody and God love me, he is mentally challenged and, um, you know, if you told me or, or, you know, many of our listeners, we'd understand, right? It might be a long old road, but you could tell us. But it's right maybe not to communicate with him. What do you understand is his condition? What is his physical health like? Do, does anybody know that? Does his no. mother get to see him? No, they just keep saying to people, he doesn't want to see you. They've got him in incommunicado. Ah, he can't talk with anybody. He wouldn't know what's going on and they wouldn't tell him. And all they have to say is he doesn't want to talk with anybody. Simple as that. And all she they have to, to tell him, all they have to tell him is that you have no visitors. Nobody likes you. Absolutely. And they probably do. They probably do. Ah. Uh, for your uh, listeners, uh, the book, I didn't write this book to make money. It's available for me for free as a PDF. All the documents I've mentioning, just email me. I have lots of emails I have on the internet. Get to me. I'll provide copies of It's not a problem. Give us the email address, Keith. I can tell you're very emotional. This means a lot to you. It's just, just abs- it makes me sick that this whole system is so corrupt and it goes against everything I believe in and what I was raised. And I think any decent person, any decent person can see through this. Now, it doesn't mean to say everyone has to do something, but they understand how corrupt the system is, how corrupt. I must put in a plug before we go uh, to a very, very helpful and a very, very dedicated person by the name of Cherry Bonnie. Her song, Wish I Knew How to Be Free, is available on SoundCloud and YouTube. And she wrote it for Martin. She did the music, the lyrics, and the words. 
it's and the vocals i'm sorry and it, it's you can get it anytime it's there it's free and i'm going to give it a spin next week on the program i'm definitely going to do that i'm going to get a a good version of it a good audio version of it and and i'll keep mentioning uh next week i'll keep mentioning your email address as well yes um, please. no 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 it's the very least i can do um listen we've got about 30 seconds give us your email address then i th- you are being very generous because writing a book and getting it out there isn't um uh, cheap uh, and it is available online folks if you can afford it go to amazon.co.uk if you can afford it and buy the book if you can't genuinely afford it and if you're being honest and you can't afford it send Keith an email but if you can't afford it bloody well buy the book tell me Keith um, what's the email address okay the book has a red and white cover if you're looking for it there's a couple of others but there's a red and white cover email address Martin Bryant is innocent all one word Martin Bryant is innocent at gmail.com Second address, Big Worm Books, one word, Big Worm Books at gmx.net. Fantastic. And um, I, I'll get those tweeted out so that people can get in touch with you. Um, I'm delighted to have met you. I really am. A big thanks to Claire for following the story and uh, getting you on. Uh, Claire, who uh, produces the programme with me. It's horrible to be talking about stuff like this. It really is. But people have to understand that it goes on because you have to understand people what sort of world we're living in and who it's run by. And that has to come to an end sooner rather than later. I think you're brilliant, uh, Keith. I really do. If it wasn't for guys like you, mate, we'd be in some trouble because it only takes one man or one woman. You know, everybody, one person can make a difference. You're living proof of that. I'll give you the very last word, my friend. And and we'll part company for now, but you are welcome any time you want to come back on to update us, you're welcome. You've got an open door to the program. I'll give you the last thank, word. Thank you. Um, I, I will definitely come back when we find out what's going on with these senators. If you're living in Australia, please go after your senators. Don't just send them an email. They'll send you an automatic response. Get on the phone. Go to their office. Demand that this be brought up in the Senate, on the floor, in the House. Bring it up. We have a man, the president of the Australian Senate, an embalmer, a person who was involved with this, who had prior knowledge, who's known about this since 1997. And you said payback, Richie, and everybody keeps saying that. He's got his payback, and that's it. The funeral company, Nelson Brothers, built this material, this embalming equipment, ready for the incident. I'll give you all the references. If you get to me, it's in the book, red and white uh, cover. And if you're not in Australia, and there's not much you can do, if you're religious... Please say a prayer for Martin, please. It was an honour to talk to you, Keith. Thanks so much for doing it. Okay. I look forward to catching up with you again real soon. I really mean that. Bye for now, my friend, and Godspeed to you. Good night, Richie. Thank you for everything. Not at all. We, we haven't done very much. Uh, that was Keith Allen Noble on there, the journalist and author, PhD. Uh, a man, it sounds like, with a heart the size of Tasmania, uh, disgusted by what's happened to Martin Bryant,